0: Today, we learn about ransomware negotiation and cybersecurity, why it's not just about data, and it's not just for large enterprises. Our guest is the founder and CEO of GroupSense, Curtis Minder. He's a leader in the cyberspace, and he's been on the front lines of ransomware negotiations, which really sounds cool. Even though he downplays it, I think it sounds super cool. I encourage you to check out his TED Talk in addition to this conversation. Please welcome Curtis Minder. You're listening to C-Suite Blueprint. The show for C-suite leaders. Here we discuss no BS approaches to organizational readiness and digital transformation. Let's start the show. Curtis, thanks so much for being here.
1: Oh, George, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. You know, I um, in preparing to, to speak with you, uh, I know that you've been doing this many, many years. But I don't know how much if you do you still realize that what you do sounds very cool to everyone on the outside, like the whole ransomware negotiator it sounds it sounds like you're some hero swooping in at, at midnight to save everyone does it does it still feel like that or or have you just gotten used to it at this point?
1: I don't know I don't know if it ever felt cool and i do <laughs> i do um, <laughs> I do recognize that it sounds cool. We actually have people who who write in uh, to the company and ask. You know, what what requirements are there to become one of these? And I I, I try to I try to level set them like this is probably not a good career choice. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, it is it is a very unusual profession for sure.
0: So so picking on the choice, how did you get into this? How did it all start?
1: Like most of my professional career, accidentally. I mean, so, you know, our, our core company is a digital risk protection and cyber reconnaissance company. Uh, what that I'll just summarize basically what that is. that That's looking for data surfacing in places it shouldn't be and helping companies mitigate or clean that up. The reason why you do that is because bad guys use your data against you. Almost every single cyber breach is, is sort of uh, fed by, by corporate data, whether that's credentials or, or whatever, uh, that is out in the wild that companies aren't aware of. And so that's, that's our core business. In order to do that really well, you, you basically have to be really good at cyber espionage. You have to operate where the bad guys operate. You have to be in all those underground markets and chat rooms and all of those things. And that puts us squarely in the nexus of the ransomware economy. That's where the initial access brokers mm-hmm. operate. Those are the people who sell network access to the ransomware operators. That's where the ransomware as a service platform people operate. And, um, you know, sort of we, we end up seeing a lot of conversations and data related to ransomware uh, work and that, that in the process of seeing that, we, we ended up getting pulled into a, our, our initial case where they asked us to be the liaison between the victim and the, uh, the actual ransomware operators. And we were sort of reluctant in the beginning, but we recognized very quickly after talking to the cyber insurance company and the law firms involved that there weren't very many people who were doing this, and we were uniquely suited since we talked to bad guys all day anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and so we ended up doing our first case, um, and it was very successful. And uh, we, we had a knack for it, and uh, it sort of snowballed on us.
0: First, talking about the data side of things, you know, I think a lot of people might just think, um, oh, we could just monitor the dark web if stuff pops up there. But it sounds like it's a lot more than that, where you're you're truly embedding with these folks. And, and to expand on that a little bit, what's that look like?
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny. I'm, I'm writing a piece right now that I call, If You Shine a Light, The Roaches Will Run. It, it certainly is useful to monitor the dark web. I think you should do that. But the threat actors are, are, are not stupid. Uh, they know that that's being monitored, and they're find, increasingly finding other channels in which they can transact their illicit activities, etc., and it's very difficult to, at the tip of the spear to, to be able to keep up with that. And that, that's, that's an art form. That is, uh, it's a discipline all its own. And it is very similar uh, to traditional espionage. You're, you're literally creating assets and personas and sock puppets and, and, and speaking their language. So most of them aren't speaking English. You have to speak their language. Um, and, and making sure you get invited to the new place. Um, and those places could be mm. chat, chat, chat rooms. It could be WhatsApp groups. Um, we're writing a piece on, on activity in the metaverse. Um, so the bad guys are moving around, so it's not just the dark web. And, and then the other thing I'll say is sometimes it's not bad guys at all. Sometimes it's your employees. Um, you might remember the term shadow IT. <laughs> That's where somebody would want to do a special project at work, and IT would tell them no, and then they'd go to Best Buy and buy a server and put it under their desk and they would do it anyway. And uh, they plug it into the corporate network and then they wouldn't patch that thing correctly and then it would cause security vulnerabilities or they would have corporate data on it. Well, nowadays the new corporate IT is basically a SaaS collaborative tools and things like that. And, and so you've know you you've got employees who are spinning up a Trello instance and then putting corporate data and not locking it down properly and, and IT doesn't, and security doesn't even know that exists. So you need a company that is looking for that and helping you clean that up.
0: Yeah, there's just to, so many ways that, that you need to have that, that contingency plan, the backup. Um, on, on the ransomware side of things, you know, I, I, we, we talk to a lot of executives and they're always trying to balance cybersecurity investments with the things that they really want to do. You know, most CEOs aren't, don't want to say, hey, we're the best at cybersecurity, right? They, they want to grow. They want to diversify. They want to super optimize. And in and, and, and cybersecurity, I've been kind of thinking about it. It's kind of like flossing. You know, they're like, yeah, could I floss after meal? I could. After every meal, I could. But maybe once a day is fine or maybe once every other day is fine. And then every time they go to the dentist, the dentist asks and like, well, I could be doing better, and they're not, right? And I think what it comes down to is a lot of them are still just viewing this as a data problem. You know, there's been many data leaks, so there'll continue to be data leaks. I can't be perfect in my cybersecurity, so what does it really even matter? I'll just do the the best I possibly can. But, uh, you know, from your stories, it's really a lot more than just data, and I'd love you to expand on that.
1: Well, first I'll tell you, like, having been sort of first boots on the ground to a lot of these cases, both small and, and large, I've learned a lot about what what works in, in sort of corporate security policy and also uh, sort of incident response and business continuity and what doesn't. And one of the things I observed pretty early on is that, you know, the, the ICP plans or the incident response plans in in the business continuity plans were, were kind of written for cyber- incidents from five to 10 years ago. Because you know, five to 10 years ago, yeah. a cyber incident was really annoying. It's just annoying, right? Somebody took something, it was embarrassing. Yeah. Probably had to notify somebody, maybe you paid a fine. You might have fired one of your staff for, for not locking something down. But so you, you, you sort of allocated budget to not be annoyed. That's not what this is.
0: <laughs> it's just like a whoops daisy at that point. Yeah, right? exactly. Like, That's <laughs> not
1: what this is. this is. This is complete business interruption, operational interruption. Um, and, and in a lot of cases, you know, the companies are in a position where if they don't solve this quickly, they, they go out of business. There's serious financial material harm that, that occurs. And so, the, you know, just for the listeners, one of the things that I would I would suggest is to try to look at it through this new lens of like, what other things do you do you prioritize? Because if they happen, your business dies. Right. Like, you need to start looking at security operationally as, as part a fundamental part of the business, because if you don't, uh, the bad guys are going to teach you a lesson and it's not, a, it's not a very cheap lesson. As far as impact, I always use the term, the ransomware blast radius. So the, the initial, by the way, your metaphor of flossing, I'm also going to steal. That was great. Um, but the, 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 <laughs> the, the blast radius, you know, the initial impact is, is what I just discussed. That is, sort of operational in nature, it's easy to understand. We can't place orders. Customers can't you know, contact us. Uh, we Maybe you can't make payroll, that sort of thing. The, there's sort of rings of impact around that that people don't think about. And sometimes those are actually longer lasting and more expensive than the initial impact. For example, some of these are obvious, like impact to customer confidence when they try to place orders and the system's down and they don't know why. But you moving moving further out to the employee ring, like so. We'll, well, what happens to employee morale when you can't make payroll for three weeks? And what's the attrition rate? And mm-hmm. and and what you know? What does it cost for you to rehire and retrain staff? You know, and that, so all of these things have to be considered um, as part of the equation, both on the on the prevention side, but on, also on the on the back end of, to decide if we're going to pay some threat actor or a ransom at all right we need to understand quantitatively to the best of our ability what is the impact and it's 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 broad and it goes as far as intellectual property where you know it was uh, you know i think it was last year it was actually one of the, the christmas attacks that we were talking about before we got on <laughs> we started recording the after that incident you know i, I tried to do a, sort of a post-mortem with the leadership and the CISO said that this was extremely harmful to our business but my biggest concern is that uh, you know, we're, we're a manufacturer, we've been doing this particular product for over 100 years. We have intellectual property and trade secrets that we think were taken as part of this attack, and I don't know what happened to that data. And if that shows up in, 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 in one of my competitors or, or, or in, the, in five years, it's gonna be a real problem for us. And so it's, those are things that people don't think about uh, related to these kinds of attacks
0: there's many parts that jump out to me in there. I mean, being able to shut down someone's business for gosh knows how long is is a huge impact to the the bottom and the top line and and the brand. But what really jumps out to me is the human impact. You know, if if you can't make payroll or or even just People are invested in what they do, right? They're really invested in, in what they're building at, at their company and, you know, what that can do to a human and, and their psyche and and their emotions as they're going through that can be so difficult. And I, I think the other part that I always, I feel for whenever I see one of these issues pop up is whoever that person was that maybe through a little bit of sloppiness or maybe even no fault of their own, they were the ones that allowed that into the organization. And now they're just carrying the burden of all of that. And it's like, that's a lot for one person to carry, right? And, and, and it's really up to the organization to have those plans in, in place, I would think.
1: It is, and, and I mean it, it, t- in order to, to sort of litigate those those things it really has to be policy driven um, on, on the corporate side I mean they need to proactively have sort of the do's and don'ts and they need to show good diligence on their part uh, that, the, that the business is behind those policies both financially and from a reinforcement perspective and and so so th- that it's not subjective when it happens it either it's either uh, your fault and an offense or it's not right and and that those that's also seems to be missing a lot of times in these scenarios, it becomes very subjective, and that's bad.
0: You know, over the past few decades, I've seen this progress from, you know, th- these types of threats, we really lo- looked at a sovereign nation level. Right. And then enterprise organizations started to face the same threats as a sovereign nation. Mm-hmm. But now it feels like this is coming all the way down to just mom and pop stores. And, and I'm curious if you have some stories from the trenches or, or, or just anecdotes around, you know, this isn't just a, a uh, you know, a big company problem. Right. This is really at, at, at every level.
1: Right. Yeah. And, and I mentioned when we we started doing this, it was sort of an accident. And after that first case, uh, which was a very large multinational company, the, the law firm and the cyber insurance companies contacted us and said, "Hey, you guys are weirdly good at this, and we kind of need some help. There's more of these, and it wasn't our core business, but we, we we decided we'd go ahead and do it. But what we did not do is initially is we did not advertise that we did it because we didn't need to. The the, the cyber insurance companies and the law firms would just call us up, right? Whenever there, there was a case. Mm-hmm. At, at one point, uh, we one of the uh, cyber breach law firms involved was bringing us a new victim and they said, hey, they went on your website and it doesn't say you do this anywhere, you know, and and, and they don't have confidence. You got to put it on your website. And I was like, well, fine. So we put it on the website and like that, just basically everybody else started showing up. And, and to your point, um, we quickly learned that for everyone that we hear about on television, there are literally hundreds, if not thousands of small businesses that are being hit across the country wow. that aren't reporting it, uh, that are not making the news. And... You know we couldn't handle the volume of that, and and frankly, you know our, our our fees aren't structured in a way that that are conducive to helping a local print shop with this problem, right? So, initially, I was doing a lot of pro bono work, <laughs> uh, as many as I could, um, much to my family's chagrin. <laughs> but it, you know it is a different it is a different. You were talking about the human part. I'm, I'm a human. You're a human. <laughs> when you when you're when you're in the large uh, cases, last I checked, last <laughs> yes, you checked, right? Uh, you're in the large cases. You're, you've got a boardroom, it's a committee, there's, a, there's the C-level folks, the CISO, the deputy CISO, you've got internal and external counsel, the CFO, et cetera. And yes, it is very emotional, and yes, those people are very upset. But I gotta tell you, it is night and day difference when you're talking to Mary who's gonna lose the business she's been building for 25 years, the small accounting firm or something in the middle of America. She's gonna to have to lay off her 13 employees who are like her family if, if this isn't solved by Wednesday. And it, is, it, it really had an impact on me. Um, and so part of what I'm doing is I did launch a nonprofit to try to help the, the scale of that problem. And, and part of the, my theory behind the nonprofit is, at this point, and I'd love to get your feedback on this, at this point, I think it is unreasonable to expect the average small business owner to understand and mitigate the risks associated with their necessary technology adoption. It's adoption. It's changing so fast that, like you know, I've been in tech for twenty plus years. I do not know how my iPhone works. I have no idea, (laughs) right? Um, So to expect the print shop owner to understand and mitigate it is unreasonable. Um, And so we got to find another way to protect.
0: Yeah, it's, it's impossible and it's also unfair. You know, at some point, I think this starts to become, you know, not to be alarmist, but it starts to become a little bit of a, a matter of national security, right? Because these these small mom and pop businesses are the ones that run all of our communities and they impact the communities the most. And, you know, they're very vulnerable. And once you start really disrupting these communities, you can have a real impact to, to our country, right? And there's a lot of resources that are out there. Because when you were talking about this earlier, all I kept thinking in my head is, "Well, wow, that sounds expensive. That sounds burdensome. Like, how could anyone on the smaller size be able to keep up with any of this?" And it, it's, um, yeah, it's just not fair. It would seem that we'd be able to have a little bit of a collective defense and, and also contingency plans on these types of things. So, what's the name of that nonprofit? I want to make sure we get that out there because that's really important.
1: So, so my day job is Group Sense, and the nonprofit is Good mm. Sense and it's under uh, GoodSenseCyber.org. And we're just getting off the ground, but we, we've got some good uh, donors and tech partners. Uh, we're partnering with some universities to have students do the assessments for these businesses in their local communities and then put in the preventative measures. And one of the things we've learned is most of these attacks are preventative. Um, mm. and, they don't, and it doesn't cost, you don't have to buy the latest you know, tech software to do it necessarily. Um, so we're at least trying to put in the minimum protections for as many of the small businesses, community by community, as we can. And uh, and then you know uh, the rest of it is the response part. Like, okay, what what do we do if it happens anyway, and and putting those resources in place
0: yeah i i've even seen where people buy the latest and greatest software and it does more more harm than good because they don't really know what they're doing with it it's it's like the (laughs) you know buying the new golf club rather than working on your swing it's it's not going to really help anything it's going to distract you from the the fundamentals that you need
1: actually one of the concerns there is the the way that tech companies are sort of subsidized or, or capitalized they're building most of these software solutions uh well i should say tools they're building software tools marketing them as solutions but the problem is is They're tools and they need operators. There's a shortage of cybersecurity talent and just supply and demand. The cybersecurity talent is going to the top of the market. They're getting paid a lot of money to work for the larger companies. That leaves nothing for everyone else. And so that's, that's another problem is even like to your point, just buying the latest software tool isn't going to solve it. You need to be able to operate that tool and basically daily effectively. And the number of businesses that can actually do that is actually quite small.
0: Interesting. You know, we've talked a little bit about this abstractly. I'd like to bring it down a little bit to, you know, what does this actually look like when you get called in to do it? Is it, my assumption is it as much as we'd all want it to be, it's not, you know, get you out of bed in the middle of the night, go to some smoke-filled room, get on the phone and talk very aggressively to some, someone on the other side, you know, um, like, uh, like olden hostage negotiators in movies. What's it look like? Is it in your pajamas on a Slack channel? What's uh, the day uh, actually look like?
1: Well, we have a whole team that, that works on it now, but uh, you know, just from a one-person perspective, it was just one person I can tell you. So, first, the victim's perspective is, you know, they can't, they come in to the office and nothing works, basically nothing. They will find a ransom note uh, somewhere. Either mm-hmm. it'll get emailed to them in one of the general email boxes, or it, typically it's showing up on a couple of the machines' desktops, unencrypted, of course. And so, in that that ransom note is usually just a text file. The ransom note will say, "You've been, you know, all of your files are locked. You've been hit by," and they usually tell who they are. They have the bad guys have these brands. Uh, the the media often calls them gangs. Mm. Uh, so you'd be like, "You've been hit by Ragnar Locker," and then they'll they'll tell you some do's and don'ts. They tell you not to shut off your machines or reboot, which is actually a good that's good advice. Uh, the software that they're using, if it's still in the encryption process, if you reboot, it, you're never getting that machine back. So just let it go. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, unfortunately, we've taught all of our, our desktop users that the first thing they should do before calling the help desk when something doesn't work is to reboot. And that has caused some issues. <laughs> um, but the next thing they tell you is is, is sort of a list of do's. And if I was going to summarize them, it's usually four or five. But these are very templatized. There's usually four or five bullets, and the do's are. Big. If I could summarize, it's they're just saying contact us. It's almost like um, like you know when you find a car you want to buy on the internet and and. Like they, all they want you to do is come into the dealership <laughs> to talk to them. Yeah.
0: You, know, you know, I want to buy it on the internet. Just tell me the price. They're like, come into the, you have <laughs> exactly. to come in. <laughs> yeah.
1: Right. And so the, to that point, the one thing the ransom notes do not contain as far as I know ever is the amount. And they'll have a very, very well-written tutorial on how to get on the dark web on, on the tour. It's actually quite good. I can teach my mom how to do it off of one of these. It's And, and then they'll have a tour website uh, that you need to go to. And so usually when I get called, I'm looking at the ransom note. Hopefully the client or the victim has not gone to that site yet. And I'll tell you why in a second. Um, We will have a discussion about, you know, one of the early questions we get asked almost universally is, should we pay? And the answer is, I don't know. Uh, That's a business decision. Um, And so let me just walk you through that really quick. There's a few gates. One is, um, is it against your ethics or values? I know that sounds soft, but mm. it might be a thing, you know? So let's talk about that. Two is, is, yeah. is it illegal? Is it illegal? So so the Treasury Department Office of Foreign Asset Control has a list of entities that thou shalt not transact with. And so we need to make sure that whoever we're about to talk to is not on that list. And the third question is really more about that blast radius that I talked about. What is the impact from a quantitative perspective? you know, to the business, because we don't want to go into a negotiation not knowing what our number is. We have to have a rough idea of what we're willing to pay if we're going to pay. And um, so we help them with that process before we ever engage the bad guys. And we try to do that as quickly as possible. So let's say we decide we're, we've got a number we're going to pay. So then we go to this dark website. And the, that URL or that website that they give you is custom to you as a victim. So when you go there their little log tells them that you visited the site. They know it's you, right? You're the only one that has that, that address.
0: They have better personalization than most most major brands that are out there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and it looks very professional too. I mean, they, the, the sites look very yeah. well done. Um, and when you go there, a lot of the sites will have this clock that starts And it it usually has a threat attached to it, and depending Mm -hmm. on which group you're talking to, the threats are different. So, like, sometimes it is, if you do not reach a settlement with us by the time this clock reaches zero, we're doubling the price. Or, if you do not reach a settlement with us, we're going to dump 25% of the data. By the way, they take a copy of as much of your data as they can for extortion, so now they're threatening to leak that data if you don't pay, right? So, they're going to say, we're going to dump 25% 25% of that data publicly if you don't pay by the time this clock So this clock starts. So, that's, so it's reason number one not to visit the site until you've talked to a responder, right? Um, you better have a plan because, uh, by the way, the clock is totally negotiable. Like I've reset that clock dozens of times. But you got to have a plan before you show up. Um, and then on the site they'll have a tab usually uh, on the browser. And you you can go into this tab and it's literally a, a embedded chat room. And that's where you will talk to the bad guys. So you're not you don't see their eyes, you can't hear their voice. That is also very templatized. They they tend to have uh, scripts that they paste in there. Uh, we've seen you know we know that we know the we know the game plan for most of these guys at this point, and what they expect. Um, and and then the, all of the the sort of back and forth and negotiation and all that stuff happens inside that little chat room on the dark.
0: Interesting, man, that, that moment when you, you essentially need to balance, you need to figure out what the equation is between your business impact and your values. What a vulnerable moment that must be, you know, and, um, after having done this for so many years and been in these moments when people are their most vulnerable, um, I know this is a big question, but like, have you learned much about vulnerability in that? Like, what has it taught you about people?
1: I guess so. I mean, it's, it's definitely different when you're talking to the boardroom and when you're talking to.
0: Because it's. Mm. Oh,
1: I don't want to overgeneralize, but I would say that if there are attorneys in the room, the values question doesn't really resonate. They just look at the attorneys and go, like. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the time. I mean, if You're sitting in a law building right now. You got to be careful what you say. <laughs> I am. I am. Uh, but, you know, but, but when you're talking to individuals, You know, some of these people are are, are true patriots, and and they they just, they say, hey, look, where's this person at? No, they're in Russia, and they've got this unofficial amnesty from their government to attack us, and we're never going to get the money back, and they're going to never be arrested, right? (laughs) I don't like to use superlatives. It's highly unlikely (laughs) that there are going to be any negative consequences for this bad guy. And we've had people saying, you know what? We're not going to do it, you know? they'll, They'll talk themselves out of it, and that's their choice, and they, they'll pay a financial consequence and 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 or go out of business, but some of them choose to to take it on the chin, and I respect that.
0: I bet that's impo- inspiring. You know, with some of those folks that you're, it must be some of the folks that you're working with. Um. So through all these years, um, I always like to to connect what I do at work to things I'm passionate about in life. Like I always compare digital transformation to maybe smoking a good brisket over 14 to 15 hours or, or the game of golf. Right. And I'm, you know, I'm curious, you know, how have you, have you brought this into your life at all? Like, like, has it, I know you ride motorcycles. Is there, is there a connection between motorcycles and and negotiating and always curious those human connections?
1: Oh, that's, that's fascinating. Yeah. So I wouldn't say there's a connection uh, between the two other than the motorcycles are a good place to game this out while you're in your helmet. (laughs) It definitely, Mm. you know, uh, you're hyper focused, uh, when you're on a motorcycle, you're, it it is a bit meditative. And so that's good for that. I would also say that, you know, I've been doing some version of cybersecurity before there was a career associated with it, 20 plus years. And when I got sort of dropped into this, this negotiation sort of liaison role, I learned how much of a discipline that was in itself. And it was a good intellectual exercise for me because, you know, I'm not, I'm, maybe I'm a little cynical on the cyber thing now. Like I've been doing it for a long time. Nothing seems new to me. <laughs> yeah. But when I learned that this yep. was in itself a, a very serious discipline and, and there's a science behind it. And um, now the first few cases I, I, I was drinking from the fire hose. But since then we've, we've collaborated with universities and, and um, had some of the greatest negotiators in the world contact us and offer to help. And we built frameworks and I've just learned a ton about how this works, um, I always joke though it only works on bad guys on the internet. I paid too much for my pickup truck <laughs> so
0: yeah, yeah, those car dealers you'll you'll never win with them, so that makes sense though I mean because even what you said to people, step number one is you need to stop and think and get a plan together that you know that's you on your motorcycle, that's me probably on a hike is is you need to stop and think, come up with a plan, and also remember like. There is science beneath all of this, and, and there, there's, everything probably will be okay if you kind of plan it out and, and leverage the right resources to move through it. Because in that moment, you know, that human fight or flight, I would imagine, comes into play, and you're freaking out, and you think that, you know, everything's just going to implode on you, especially for those those smaller people, smaller Yeah, and the, the, that um, part of it, I so guess... I definitely is, see the connection.
1: Yeah, that part of it, I guess, is also, um, you know, was interesting to me, too, because... As difficult it is to deal with the bad guys, uh, a lot of times we're playing a bit of a sort of a therapist role or advisor role to the victim. Again, on the larger side, it tends to be a little bit of a committee. But as we get into the medium to smaller businesses, it's really a human to human conversation, and you have to talk people off the ledge, you know, figuratively off the ledge a few a bit, and and get them to focus on what's important. And that's hard to do because, of what you said, the fight or flight's taken you know, taking a hold of them, and they need someone. So one of the things I say is, like, look, don't don't try to do this on your own. You know, So we brought in to, to play recovery for a number of cases where people tried to do this on their own. They say, hey, look, you know, I read Getting to Yes, <laughs> the great negotiation book, <laughs> um, and uh, I can do this as good as anybody. These bad guys know what they're doing, and they are quite good. And, and it's important to understand the psychology of the bad guys, which most people don't. And what motivates them, and so you need someone who understands that, but you also need an objective party, uh, so that you can have somebody that is looking at this through a third lens that doesn't involve them going out of business, right? And so the desperation part. and um, So there's there's value there, and it's it's also you know sort of cathartic to help people through
0: that. Yet another argument for why therapy is good for everyone. You need to bring in an expert to to, to solve it's all just your just healthcare. Um, it's just
1: healthcare. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, Curtis, this has been great. You know, I, I love to always, well, first of all, thanks for everything you're doing, because it's not just uh, your day job, but what you're doing in the nonprofit world, like really helping those small, mid-sized businesses get to a point where they can fight fair a little bit here, you know, get to the, the same point that, that these enterprises are at, I think is a really noble cause. So, so thanks for your time and, and thanks for everything you're doing there. I always like to finish these though, with what's the best advice that you've ever received?
1: Well, I can't. I can't put it into words uh, concisely, but I, I do think that I've, I've been lucky to have some older mentors back from when I was very, very young, and they impressed on me very early uh, the importance of self-awareness and and self-reflection. Um, some people would say I do it to a fault today. <laughs> When you get in these positions of, of, of influence where where I'm talking to audiences in these big talks that I do or if I'm'm I'm in the, one of these incidents and, and I'm actually impacting the outcome of a business you sometimes it's easy for you to become sort of God in your own mind or like I'm the expert I'm I, but you also have to check yourself sure. in the moment to make because you're gonna you're gonna make mistakes too and these mistakes impact a lot of people I think it keeps you grounded and it makes you realize, you know, you're just a person like everybody else. Uh, you might have a little bit more information, <laughs> but that doesn't make you infallible. And I think that, I think that's, you know, it, it is some form of advice I got when I was really young building internet companies.
0: <laughs> that's fantastic advice. I think the world needs more of it. And, and maybe I'm strong my age, but I believe a great poet once said, you need to check yourself before you wreck yourself. <laughs> uh, which I love it. A hip hop reference from my, Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Curtis, thanks so much again. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you for your time. You've been listening to c Sweet Blueprint. If you like what you've heard, be sure to hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you never miss a new episode. And while you're there, we'd love it if you could leave a rating. Just give us however many stars you think we deserve. Until next time.